Man, that Porter kid can sing. <laughs> it was awesome. It was from the diaphragm. It was perfect. <laughs> That's how you're supposed to do it. From the diaphragm. Proverbs chapter 19, verse 21. We're on page uh, 644, if you're using a pew Bible. Proverbs chapter uh, 19, verse 21. We're on page 644. Let me just read the text. Many are the plans in a man's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. It's our focus text this morning. If you're ever in uh, Washington, D.C., and you ever get to go to the National Gallery, um, look for this uh, series of paintings by uh, an American painter named Thomas Cole. He painted them in 1840. It's actually four paintings that go together as a series, and the series is entitled The Voyage of Life. And the voyage of life is its kind of what it sounds like. It's a very allegorical depiction of the different phases of life. So the first uh, painting is called Infancy. The second painting is called uh, Youth. The third one, Manhood. The fourth one, Old Age. And as you look at these paintings, it, it tells the story of life in very kind of allegorical ways. So, for instance, the first painting, Infancy, has this uh, baby. And the baby's in a boat. And the boat is being steered by an angel. And it's floating down this river. It's, the river's coming out of this dark cave. So it's just you know, the idea of, of birth. And all around it is this beautiful kind of Edenic scenery. And so you have this vision of the joy and the beauty of, uh, of a birth. And then the next painting is called Youth. And in this painting now, the little baby has become a young man. And now the angel is on the shore and the young man's got the tiller. And he's setting off down the river by himself. And in front of him is, again, beautiful scenery and big billowing clouds. And high above the clouds are these transparent castles and palaces. And so it symbolizes, you know, the idealism of youth when you have the whole world as your oyster. And here's this boy, he's chasing his dreams and he imagines what life is going to be like. And then I always love, I've seen these paintings twice in person, and I always love the transition from painting two to painting three, which is called manhood. Because now the, the young man has grown into a, an adult, and he's in the boat, but he's not in the castles in the skies that he imagined. Instead, he's on these jagged, treacherous rapids, and the water is gushing over, and the wind is whipping him, and the sky is dark, and the tiller has broken off the boat. <laughs> and he's just kind of... And what you see in this painting is he's looking up to heaven and he's praying because he's lost control of his life and it hadn't turned out the way he thought. And that's what I love. I love that transition from two to three because I think it, for some reason, at least for me, it captures something about the way life turns. That when we're young or younger, we have dreams, we have plans about how life is supposed to go. We all have a narrative in our heads, a script of what it should be like. And then 20 years later or 30 years later or 15 years later, we look at where our life is and we're like, how did I get here? You know, I, I, I didn't plan on this to happen. 
you know, this isn't how it's supposed to turn out. This isn't the plan. Well, actually, it is the plan. It's just not our plan. As it says in Proverbs 19.21, many are the plans in a man's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. This morning I want to think with you about that attribute of God that is commonly referred to as His sovereignty. Uh, If you were here last Sunday, we talked about the fear of the Lord being the beginning of wisdom, that the path to wisdom uh, begins and is uh, supported by reverencing who God is. So what I want to do over the next Sunday, including this Sunday, is just look at some different attributes of God. Next Sunday we'll look at His omniscience, that He knows all things. But today I want to look at His omnipotence, that God is sovereign, which means He's the King, He's the ruler, He's in control. Uh, and His plans prevail. We have our ideas, we know things we want to do, but ultimately it's God who guides and directs our steps. Um, so for instance, uh, turn back to Proverbs chapter 16. We see this theme woven throughout Proverbs implicitly and explicitly. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 1 says, To man belong the plans of the heart, but from the Lord comes the reply of the tongue. We have in our heads what we want to happen, but God is the one who determines what actually comes out. Or verse 4. Look at chapter 16, verse 4. The Lord works out everything for his own ends, even the wicked for a day of disaster. Everything is according to God's plan. Even the things that we can't understand, disaster, and those in the world who are evil, and somehow God is working them out for his own good. Or uh, look at verse 33 at the end of the chapter. It says, uh, chapter 16, verse 33, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Now, in old times, actually, even recently, uh, Christians and the Old Testament have often used the casting of lots. You know, it's kind of like flipping a coin to make decisions. And so when they're totally at a loss, they don't know what to do, they say, okay, we're going to cast a lot. And they get down on their knees and they pray as a community, God, we believe that you are sovereign, that you control everything, that you are even in control of how this lot will tumble. And so, you know, in a total step of faith and kind of desperation, we're going to cast this lot. And Lord, based on this, we'll say that is the outcome. And they've sort of prayerfully rolled the dice, believing that God can control that. Which is, I find that really challenging. Because I I realize I often think about God deistically. You know, the deists in the 18th century, they believed in God, but it was kind of like God made the universe, He put the laws of the universe in motion, and then He took a very hands-off approach to the universe. So, you know, yeah, there is a God, but he doesn't really get involved in the affairs of the universe. It's just the laws of nature and use your reason. And I think a lot of people, even people who claim to believe in God, when we look at how our lives are actually lived out, they're rather deistic in the way we relate to God. It's as if, well, God's doing his thing uh, and over there, and he's put the laws of the universe in place, and so you just function within them. But God doesn't actually intervene. God wouldn't affect the way a lot is cast But we see here, even those little details are under the control of God. The pictures in Proverbs is of a comprehensive sovereignty that rules over everything. Even molecules bumping into each other is underneath the sovereign control of God. Look at chapter 20, verse 24. Again, just trying to pick out some of the, the most clear places of this theme in Proverbs. And we haven't even looked elsewhere in the Scriptures. This is just Proverbs. 
Proverbs chapter 20, verse 24. It says, A man's steps are directed by the Lord. How then can anyone understand his own way? You know, God is in charge and we think we know what we're doing in life, but it's mysterious how we end up the places we end up and the way our life turns out the way uh, we weren't expecting it. You know, maybe you're here this morning and you would not call yourself a Christian. Maybe that's not where you're at. And I don't know if you're an atheist or an agnostic or you just, who knows, don't even think about it. You're, you're like, what are you? I'm, I'm just a Red Sox fan. Whatever. You're, you're not a Christian. Okay. And, but, but haven't there been times in your life where things have happened to you where you've said, um, that was weird. <laughs> How that worked out and then that worked out and then that worked out. And it almost feels as if it was more than a coincidence. And you, and you say, it just seems like that was supposed to happen. And I hear people talk like that. Even people who wouldn't believe that the Bible is God's Word at all. Yet there's a times in our lives where we get this sense that it's not just that some things happened, but that we followed a path that was laid before us. There was a river that we sailed down certain twists and turns. And we look back on it and we go, huh, that was really weird. <laughs> and you weren't experiencing something random, according to Scripture anyway, that God is in control. And at times He gives us a glimpse of that plan and that purpose that He has for us. Or look at uh, chapter 21, verse 33. Or rather, verse 30. Uh, Proverbs chapter 21, verse 30. Next chapter over. It says, There is no wisdom, no insight, no plan that can succeed against the Lord. He is sovereign. The horse is made ready for the day of battle. We make our plans. We uh, get ourselves ready. But victory rests uh, with the Lord. And so it's God who determines these things. Now, I think that's the sticking point for us, this idea that God's plans prevail. Uh, We find that frustrating, don't we? Because it's frustrating when our plans don't prevail and they don't work out. And I think that's the whole issue with God's sovereignty underneath it all is... We want our plans to prevail. We want our ideas to succeed. We want our schemes for our life to come to pass. Uh, I don't know if any of you watch Sesame Street. I used to watch it when I was a kid. And then I I stopped watching it for a long time. And now that I have kids, I've seen it again. And some things have changed since the last time you've been to Sesame Street. Uh, Everyone knows about Snuffleupagus now. He's kind of come out. Um, and, uh, and another thing that's changed is that the last ten minutes of Sesame Street is this new segment, it's actually an award-winning segment, called Elmo's World. I don't know if you know this. It even has a song. You know Elmo, the little red guy? He kind of looks like Grover, but he's red. And he, uh, he sings, you know, la, 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 Elmo's World. And it's this whole segment at the end where we enter into Elmo's kind of funny little world where the the closet talks to him and he talks to the furniture and it's this weird world that operates on Elmo's laws of physics or whatever. Uh, and, I, and I was thinking as I was looking through this, like we all live, we have our own little version of that world. There's la 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 la, Jeremy's world. And in our heads, we have this vision of how the world is supposed to be. And we go into that little world sometimes. And we're like, oh, this is how it's supposed to be. In Jeremy's little world. And so maybe that uh, vision of the world uh, has a story that's like that you're going to have a certain career. And at a certain age, you're going to be making six figures. And uh, in this career, this is going to happen and this is going to happen and you'll never get laid off. 
because that's how the career is going to progress. And you'll get married uh, to the perfect person and they're going to have these qualifications, you know, A through Z. And uh, you're going to have 3.4 kids. And you're going to live in a certain uh, town or in a certain neighborhood with a five-bedroom colonial or whatever it is. And you'll retire at age 50. And uh, you'll be able to just go on cruises and be surrounded by grandchildren and children who are all well-adjusted, healthy, have gone to great schools. And there won't be any fights in your family. You know, we have this dream world. And even though we don't want to admit it, it's there. And so then it doesn't happen that way. And we're like, what is going on? Come on, God. You know, la, 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 Jeremy's world. Don't you know what my world is supposed to be? And I'm reminded of that hymn. This is my Father's world. This is His world. He's sovereign. And that just grates on us. Because, I mean, let's face it. Can we just have a moment of honesty? There's a lot of us here who are just, we're flat out control freaks. We control our businesses. We control our money. We control our uh, plans. We control our homes. We control our children. We control our appearance. We control all of these things. And when things aren't exactly under our control, we absolutely flip out. And we become angry, we become pushy, we become ugly until we can get things back into this at least order that we have in our heads of the way things are supposed to be. And we we don't like it. And that is further buttressed by and it's reinforced by the culture around us. So it's not just that we're like that intuitively, which we are, but I believe this this culture in which we live reinforces the idea of uh, a radical individual autonomy. You know, America has always been based on freedom. But the idea of freedom has changed over the centuries from what our founders meant. When they talked about freedom, it was very much in the context of a social responsibility to one another. But that meaning of freedom really has changed from, from that kind of freedom in the sense of being in community to today, freedom really means no one can tell me what to do. That's what freedom has come to mean today. Is I can do whatever I want to do and nobody can tell me what to do. I'm in charge of my life. I'm in charge of my uh, destiny. And so the slogan is, you know, fulfill your dreams, follow your heart, um, you know, reach your potential, take control of your life, take control of your finances, whatever it is. You know, your best life now. Oh, sorry. Uh, but, you know, we, we have all of these different ideas of how we're supposed to be in control. And we even turn it into religion. So there's a whole segment of Christianity that says, you know, it's really about you and your happiness and your dreams. And God is there to help you fulfill those. Instead of saying, no, He's the King and we're here to fulfill His purposes and His will. And that just grates on us. Because really, I mean, aren't we getting at the root of the matter at this point? Isn't this what sin is all about? And I hear that word sin, you know, what do you think of? All right, don't lie, don't steal. Yeah, those are sins. But underneath sins is sin. And underneath the individual actions that we commit that we know aren't right is an underlying attitude. And the fundamental attitude of sin that pervades all people is that, frankly, we want to be God. We want control over it and over life. 
You go back to that original story in the Garden of Eden. There's Adam and Eve. And God, of course, tells them, don't eat from that tree. And then the serpent comes along and says, you should eat from the tree. And what's his logic? He says, then you will be like God. So really, you know, what was the sin Adam and Eve committed? Eating the forbidden fruit? Yes. But under it was the deeper sin, which was this rebellion against the sovereignty of God. And so this people is the defining question of the human race and of all human history. The defining question of human history is, who is God? Is it God or is it us? Is Jesus Lord or is Jeremy Lord? And that's it. So much of it comes down to that fundamental issue of who is God. And the essence of sin, in which we are all sinners, the Bible is clear about that, is that we live under a belief that we are sovereign, that we are God, or that at least we want to be, at least over some little segment of our little world that we've carved out for ourselves as a little fiefdom in the midst of God's great kingdom of this universe. But the Bible is so clear that God is the king, that he is the one who's sovereign. In fact, put a finger here in Proverbs 21. We'll come right back to it. But I want you to turn over to the next book, the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 45. It's the next book right after Proverbs. Isaiah chapter 45. Keep a finger in 21. We'll come right back to it. Isaiah 45, verse 5. Oh, this is such a great passage. Makes you want to preach on it. I think I did. I can't remember. Isaiah 45, verse 5. Who is God? Well, God has an opinion. He says, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. He says, I'll strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me, so that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, men may know that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. You know, am I getting the picture here? Am I getting the message? And then what does he do? To show that he is the only true God, what does he do? He goes on to talk about his sovereignty over all things. So he says in verse 7, I form the light and I create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. Then he talks about his sovereignty over salvation. You heavens above, rain down righteousness. Let the clouds shower it down. Let the earth open wide. Let salvation spring up. Let righteousness grow with it. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to him who quarrels with his maker. To him who is but a potsherd among the potsherds of the ground. Does the clay say to the potter, what are you making? Does your work say he has no hands? Woe to him who says to his father, what have you begotten? Or to his mother, what have you brought birth? This is what the Lord says, the Holy One of Israel and its maker. Concerning things to come, do you question me about my children or give me orders about the work of my hands? It is I who made the earth and created mankind upon it. My own hands stretched out the heavens. I marshaled their starry host. God's sovereign over creation. He's even sovereign over the nations, verse 13. I will raise up Cyrus. He was the great Persian king. In my righteousness, I will make all his ways straight. He will rebuild my city and set my exiles free, which he did. But not for a price or reward, says the Lord Almighty. That's the sovereignty of God. It's, it's comprehensive. It's nature. It's salvation. It's people. It's kings. He's the Lord. 
Not a sparrow falls to the ground apart from the will of God, Jesus taught us. The Apostle Paul said that God is the one who works out everything according to the purpose of his will. That's pretty comprehensive. Everything is worked out according to his will. So it's not just that God is potentially sovereign but chooses not to be, but everywhere we see in the Bible is a God who is completely sovereign and who is completely active in expressing the totality of his rule over all things. He's an awesome God. And going back to Proverbs 21.1, he is even sovereign over our hearts. And this, of course, strikes at the very root of our current radical individual autonomy. But it says in Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart, so the most powerful person in the land, his heart is in the hand of the Lord. He directs it like a water course wherever he pleases. So this is agricultural imagery. This is the idea of a farmer who has a canal system to water his fields. And in canal systems, you know, you have a series of dikes and dams and gates. So if you want water to go over here, you open up certain gates and close gates and the water goes over there. And then you've irrigated that field, so you close that one down and you open up these gates and now the water goes over here. And that's the idea. God's like, yeah, that's what I can do with the king, just wherever I want. I think of when uh, God talked to Pharaoh and he said, I'm going to harden your heart. Or it says in the book of Ezra, he said to King Cyrus that, that God moved in the heart of King Cyrus to let the people go free. God is sovereign even over our hearts, even over the secret things inside of us. Which I'm very thankful for because if God wasn't sovereign over my heart, I would never have come to Him. (laughs) If God couldn't open up my heart and give me faith, I never would have turned to God because we're lost in our sins. The Bible is extremely clear about that, that sin is not just an action, it's a condition that renders me hostile to God. And so even if someone came to me and preached the best sermon in the world, if God doesn't open up my heart, I'm going to be like, yeah, right. (laughs) I don't believe that. I I reject that. And so God has to open my heart as well. He has to reach in and change my heart. We call this being born again or regeneration. But God has to turn my heart like a water course so that I will respond in faith to His Gospel and to the good news of His salvation and His forgiveness. Um, I'm thankful that God changes hearts today because even as a Christian, I still need change in my heart. I still need God to keep working with my desires and my outlook and my mind. I'm not you know, all fixed yet. I, I'm saved, I'm forgiven, I'm justified, but God still is doing a process of transforming my mind, my inner person. And so I'm thankful that God is sovereign even over hearts and lives and minds. And so God's purposes prevail. Many are the plans of a man's heart. But it's God's purposes that prevail. Why? Because He's sovereign. He's sovereign and it's a total sovereignty that covers every last thing in all of the universe. Now perhaps as I'm saying all this, there has been a question forming in your mind. Maybe a little red flashing light somewhere kind of going like, warning, warning. A little red flag. And, and somewhere in your mind this... Not, maybe it's not even an objection, but it's just kind of a question. And it goes like something like this. Like, well, if that's true, and God is that sovereign, and God is in control like that, then why should we do anything? If the Lord's purposes prevail, I mean, why should we make any plans? Why should I go to work tomorrow? I mean, if God's purposes prevail, and He wants me to have food, there'll be food. 
And uh, if, if He wants me to have money, there will be money. And if He wants me to do anything, He'll do it. So why should I do anything? Why should I pray? If all of God's purposes and plans are in place, why pray about anything? Why share the Gospel? But, you know, why, why are we spending money to support pastors like me to preach the Gospel? Why are we spending money to support missionaries like Sean to send out DVDs to the world? If it's God who's sovereign anyway, I mean, why, why not just all stay home and just pray and say, all right, God, you're sovereign Save some people out there. We're just going to hang around here and chill out. I mean, doesn't the doctrine of God's sovereignty really just turn us into puppets? Aren't we simply marionettes and God's manipulating us? And, you know, like Pinocchio, we're, we're sort of moving around. You can't see the strings, but God is manipulating us and doing what he wants with us. Doesn't this render uh, human beings into robots, this idea that God is totally sovereign? And I suppose the best way to answer that is, when I look at the Bible which teaches the absolute sovereignty of God, I also see in the Bible the responsibility and reality of human choice. They're both there. Or here's another way of putting it. There's three types of Bible passages, three types of texts. We'll call them type A, type B, and type C. Type A are all of the Bible passages that teach human responsibility and human decisions. Uh, and and there's, they're all over the Bible. You know, when Jesus says to the people, repent and believe, that's a human responsibility text because it's assuming that we really have to repent and believe, and if we don't, we will be held responsible for our lack of repentance and faith. The whole book of Proverbs, you might argue, taken as a whole, is a type A text because so much of Proverbs is about do this, don't do that. And so it's assumed throughout Proverbs that we are responsible for our choices. Um, nowhere in the Bible can I find human beings portrayed as puppets, as uh, irresponsible because God's in control and so we just do what we do. Everywhere the Bible assumes that we're responsible and we have real choices to make and if we don't make those choices, we're in trouble if we make the wrong choices and that we need to pray and that if we pray, God actually hears and does things. That's everywhere in the Bible. That's type A texts. And then there's type B texts. Type B texts are the ones we just talked about this morning. The sovereignty of God texts. Like Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He directs it like a water course. Like Isaiah 45. Uh, like Romans chapter 9 is kind of the granddaddy of all sovereignty of God texts. And so we see those texts where it's really clear that God's in control and it's not a modified control. It's not a conditional control. It's not like he could control but he doesn't. We see God, He's really active in guiding all things. So those are the B-type texts. The C-type texts are those that explain how A and B fit together. The C-type texts are the ones that show us how it is that man can be responsible in his choices and God can be sovereign and that fits without uh, creating a contradiction. Those are the C-type texts. The problem, as far as I can tell, is... There are no C-type texts in the Bible. <laughs> this is why this is so hard. So essentially, what God has told us is, you're responsible, and I'm in control, and we're like how? And he says, none of your biswax. <laughs> I'm God. That should be enough. What? You have to explain to me how you can do this. How can the potsherd quarrel with the potter. And he says, and so he brings us to a place. I, I think God intentionally doesn't tell us 
Just like he doesn't tell us how the Trinity works, just like he doesn't tell us how Jesus can be fully God and fully man. You know, there's all kinds of paradoxes within Scripture. And he, he, I think God intentionally plants these mysteries at the very center of his truth and the center of his gospel so that we can't come along like, you know, autonomous individual humans who say, well, I'm going to figure out God because, you know, I can figure out anything. And God's like, yeah, okay, go ahead, try. Go ahead. Yeah, you can't figure it out, huh? I guess we're back to that issue. Who is God? <laughs> we're back to that issue. And, and I believe that God has put those mysteries. So it's a mystery. It's a mystery. And mysteries call forth faith. Everyone has faith in something. Atheists have faith. Everyone has faith in something or another. And so God calls us to have faith that He is greater than we can possibly imagine. That's what God's asking you to have faith. That He's greater than you can possibly imagine. And that His greatness is so great that it even comprehends your choices in a way that doesn't destroy the reality of your choice and yet He's sovereign. And you go, how? I don't get it. I don't get it. He says, trust me. He's a good God. And He's sovereign. So, what the Bible teaches is not fatalistic passivity. It's not, I'm just going to sit here on my couch and do nothing because God's sovereign. Nor is it a hyper-individualistic autonomy where we're free from God. It's something else, and I guess to give it a title, I think what the Bible teaches is a humble activity or humble activism. That we are called to be working and praying and doing and serving the Lord, but with a recognition at all times that He is sovereign. And so all of our, all of our actions are done with a certain sense of contingency and dependence upon God. Uh, I think a great passage that shows this is James chapter 4. Turn to James in the New Testament, page 1198. James chapter 4 shows how we should deal with making plans in this world. Coming back to our main theme of plans, that God's plans prevail. Okay, should I not make any plans? No, you should make plans, but you should make them in a certain way. James chapter 4, page 1198. And look at uh, verse 13. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. There's your plans. James says, why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. So the idea is that when we make our plans and when we make our ideas, and, but we do it with the sense that God is sovereign. And so we submit and humble ourselves to Him. Even good plans. Sometimes we make good plans that aren't selfish, but they're, they're for God's kingdom and for God's glory, and they don't work out. And even those, we have to submit to His sovereignty. And we say, God, even as we make these plans, we understand that You are God, and we surrender ourselves to You. And when life doesn't turn out according to Elmo's world, and when we do make those plans, and even good plans that you think God would want to answer, and instead life goes like this, and the rudder is broken off the boat, and we're going over the rocks down the rapids, those are the times when we are challenged to put our faith completely in God's sovereignty and say, okay, God, this is what I thought was going to happen but I surrender myself to your sovereignty. We, you know, like the guy in the picture, we put our hands together and we say, I don't have the tiller anymore. I can't even guide my life, but I trust you. And I surrender my will to your will. 
and all of my ideas and dreams and visions of what my life was supposed to be, I put at the foot of the cross because You are the Lord. And I know that may sound a little bit stifling. I think, you know, when you're in the individual autonomy mindset, this idea of surrendering to God's sovereignty sounds like a prison sentence. Like, why would I do that? But here's the amazing thing, is that when you surrender to His sovereignty, you actually find yourself liberated. It's ironic. It's surprising. But it happens. Suddenly you find yourself free and alive and not passive, but more active than you've ever been. Because you have a sense that, of freedom that your God is guiding all things. And so you, you engage life with gusto, knowing that He's sovereign and it's not up to you. And rather than making you passive, it should make you even more active and more prayerful and more evangelistic, I think. When you really sense that God's sovereignty is behind you. And even in those most painful moments of life, we are enabled to surrender our lives over to God and to trust Him. Reminded me of a quote I found by uh, Spurgeon, the great uh, 19th century British preacher. He said, There is no attribute more comforting to his children than that of God's sovereignty. Under the most adverse circumstances, in the most severe trials, they believe that sovereignty has ordained their afflictions. That sovereignty overrules them and that sovereignty will sanctify them all. There is nothing for which the children of God ought to more earnestly contend than the doctrine of their master over all creation. The kingship of God over all the works of His hands. The throne of God and His right to sit upon that throne. For it is God upon the throne whom we trust. The sovereignty of God is a sweet doctrine. It is a wonderful doctrine. And rather than crushing us and making us passive and weak, it should make us joyful and energetic as we boldly go out into the world knowing that our God is in charge and that He's good and that He loves us. And so we can serve. And when things don't go our way, we go, okay, guess I thought it was going this way, we're going this way. Great, now what's God going to do? And I can engage there and I, I learn to walk by faith in His Sovereign will. And could it be that sometimes God brings trials and difficulties into our life for the express purpose of bringing us to a place of going like this? Could it be? Could it be the reason the tiller gets broken off and the waters get choppy is because up to that point I thought I am the captain of my fate. I'm the master of my destiny. And God breaks off the tiller and He sends us into the rapids and we go, ah! And He's like, I'm trying to get your attention to bring us to the place where we go, okay, I'm, I'm done trying to guide this boat. You're the Lord. God has a plan. He has a purpose. Here's God's purpose. It's that He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross so that whoever turns to Christ, can have their sins forgiven, whoever surrenders to the lordship of the King who was crucified can be forgiven and have eternal life. That's the plan of God. And you go, I don't like that plan. It doesn't make sense to me. You know, I, I think I'm a good person and I'm just fine and I'm religious. And God's like, okay, that's your plan, whatever. <laughs> this is God's plan, which is salvation not by works, not by my accomplishments, not by my religiosity or good deeds, but salvation by grace through faith in Christ. 
And so may God give us grace. May He turn our hearts so that we will more and more trust Him and love Him and be set free to serve Him with the confidence that comes from knowing He is absolutely sovereign and He is absolutely good and He loves us. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we just humble ourselves before You as our King right now and we worship Your sovereignty. You are the Lord. And Lord, what a liberating truth that is. And God, I pray that You would bring us to that place of joyfully embracing You as King. And I I pray, Lord, for any brother and sisters here today who is going through the rapids. Maybe they feel like their boat has crashed on the rocks. And they're drowning. God, I just pray that they would look up to You and that they would know that Your hand is upon them. That, Lord, You don't give us anything beyond what we can bear in You. God, I pray encourage those who are discouraged and scared to reach out to You and trust You. Maybe they have been. Maybe they have been praying. God, give them strength to pray yet again today and to reach out to You. And God, for those who have questions, who have doubts, I pray that You would show Yourself to them. That they might see that You are an awesome, loving King. And Lord, help us to see the pain and the agony that has come into the world because of our um, coup against the sovereign King of the universe. I pray, Lord, that we would repent and turn to You and that we would embrace Jesus as Savior and Lord. And so, Lord, just be at work in our midst. God, don't take Your hand off this church because if You do, we're lost. Lord, keep Your hand on this church, on every soul here. Keep turning us to Jesus. Turning us to Jesus. God, I, I, we, we struggle with this kind of spiritual ADD where we just keep looking at other things. God, keep turning us to Jesus. Touch our hearts, we pray in His name. Amen.